If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. So far in our series, we've talked about Christ, our end, our telos. He's our very destination. We've seen Christ, our Lord, all of life is all for Jesus. And last week, we looked at Christ, our example. And this morning, we're talking about Christ, the final word. And so let's pray together as we look at this passage of Scripture. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks and praise for the ways in which you have met with us this morning already in our singing, in our confession, in our praying. You are the God who is with us. And this morning in your presence, we recognize your presence with us. And we ask that you would open up our hearts and make us attuned to your voice and what you would say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So this last week on Thursday, I went into South Pasadena to pick up a sofa that I had found on Craigslist. And I pulled up in front of this house, and it was this really super cool uh, mid-century modern design home, and it looked incredibly beautiful. I could see through the windows inside, and I was actually really excited to go in to this house and to see the sofa. And so I walk up, knock on the door, the guy invites me in, and we walk into the living room. Gorgeous house, lots of incredible artwork around. And he invites me, he just says, oh, you want to, want to sit on the couch? And I sit down, and he stands next to me. And uh, it was a great couch, and it was so great for conversation that from that point we engaged in this conversation over the next hour together on religion and politics, which are my two favorite topics to engage on, with on Perfect Strangers. And, um, <laughs> But he was this really fascinating, interesting, uh, secular Jewish man. And I asked him at some point the question, I said, you know, um, he, he said, you know, I, I don't go to synagogue. I'm, I'm basically a cultural Jew. You know, we do the holidays, but that's about it. You know, I'm not really uh, religious in that way. And, and I just said, you know, um, in the midst of our consumer-oriented, frenetic, you know, tech-saturated culture, do you ever find yourself experiencing a mystery and a meaning deficit? And, and he, he responded in a number of different ways, but one thing that he said is he said, you know, he goes, um, I've actually, uh, my, my son is going to be having his bar mitzvah this year. And so he said, I'm actually trying to make that a very meaningful experience for him. And apparently, I don't know if there's a a series of lectionary readings or the rabbi decides, but when a child is, or when a a, a young man uh, goes through his bar mitzvah, there's a number of different biblical texts that are especially suited for that child on this occasion. And he said, so, you know, he goes, I'm trying to make this meaningful for him. I'm inviting the rabbi over to my house, and we're going to do this thing here. And we've got these Bible texts, and so we've been looking at them and trying to study them a bit. And he said, but um, my problem is, is he said, every last one of these texts, he says, they're just so violent. Now, I don't know which ones he was getting from the Old Testament, but there was a lot to choose from, quite frankly, that might have lent him to think that way about this passage. And he was really struggling with this. He was like, what do I do do with these very violent texts in the Old Testament? And I could actually relate to him. You know, I can remember uh, the first time I actually started to really read through the the real Bible with my children. You know, you move on from the, um, the story Bibles 
to the real telling of like the story of the flood narrative, and you start reading through this with your child, and all of a sudden your, your stomach starts to be like, oh wow, this is, this is uncomfortable, it's awkward. This is strong, kind of violent stuff. And it can be troubling, it can cause issues for people in their faith. And I think especially in our own day and age, you know, uh, the new atheists, I mean, one of their favorite attacks of Christianity is that the, the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. And they'll point to all these very violent texts. And I can remember my daughter, um, Audrey, when she was 14, you know, she decided she was gonna read through the entire Bible. And over the course of two months, she read from Genesis to Malachi. I was like, dang, I've never done that, honey. And she said it, it almost destroyed my faith. Because the, the, the picture that she was reading about of God there seemed to, to run against what she had learned about in Jesus and she didn't know how to deal with this and it seemed to run against the grain of her own cultural sensibilities. And, and she's not alone. There's a whole lot of us, maybe some of you in this room, who struggle with these passages. And for some of you, it was one of the reasons why at some point you actually felt like, should I, should I walk away from, from my faith? And some of you, maybe it's why you walked away from your faith already right now. And so we need to deal with this issue, and, and this morning we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that helps us, I think, read the Old Testament and some of the more difficult passages, and helps us really actually understand the New Testament as well. And it's from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And so I want to draw out three principles that we learn from this passage about the Bible that I think if you grab a hold of these, they can actually help you as you engage with the Scriptures. And I will say that my, I, I do have a vested interest. I love the Bible. I'll be straightforward with you. Uh, if I look back at like the single most life-changing kind of moment in my life when I was a, a teenager, it was when I started daily Bible reading. The Bible came into my life and it changed me. I love the Bible, and yet I also want to be frank that I also find the Bible troubling and difficult at times. And it's here that I find some help. And so Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. Now let's just set these verses in their context and then we'll draw out these uh, three principles about the Bible that we learn here. So the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians in the first century, a bunch of Jewish converts who had left the temple and the sacrificial system and the priesthood and have become a part of the community of Jesus followers. And yet, at some point in their journey of following Jesus, life got difficult, persecution arose, maybe some of their family members excommunicated them from the home, and some of them were tempted to leave Christianity, to leave Jesus, and go back to their former practice of Judaism, to go back to the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And so, the, the author of this book actually writes to encourage these Christians to stay with Jesus, and he does so by showing them and us that Jesus is superior to everything that's ever gone before. That everything that has been leading up to Jesus just pales in comparison to the one who has come. That all of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and all the distinctive markers of Judaism, they were like booster rockets on a shuttle. They were there to get the thing into outer space, but once it was there, they got left behind. And now that they've entered into the cosmic, beautiful, majestic reality that is Jesus, they can leave all that other stuff behind. And so he writes in this text to help them understand something of the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. In fact, look at what it says in verse 
uh, 1 and 2. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so he contrasts the revelation of God to the prophets with the revelation of God through the son. And he writes to show them that the old revelation, the Old Testament, the old covenant is inferior to the new revelation, the new covenant that is found in Jesus. But I want you to see three principles that he teaches us in this text about the Bible, about specifically the Old Testament. So let's tick through each one of these. First thing that I want you to see from this text is that it reveals to us that although the Bible is written for us, the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, was not written to us. Well, you say, well, who was it written to? Well, look what it says back in that text. It says, long ago, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to who? Our fathers. It says, long ago, God spoke to our fathers. And he's showing us here that the Bible, although it is written for us, and certainly the Bible is for us, the stories in the Old Testament, the laws, the promises, the poetry, and all the rest, is written for our instruction, our edification, uh, to shape our understanding of who Jesus is. Although it is written for us, it was not written to us. Originally, it was written a long time ago to our fathers, which is code language for ancient Israel. Or we could put it like this, the Bible was written originally as an ancient book to an ancient group of people. So it's an ancient text written to an ancient group of people who are not us, and the first obvious key that it is not written to us is that it's written in what language? Hebrew. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Now why was the Old Testament written in Hebrew? Well, some people say, well, that's the language God speaks. God speaks Hebrew, and so he reveals himself in Hebrew. No, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew because the, the Jewish people were an ancient Semitic people, and that was the language they spoke. So it is written to them in their language to connect with them on their level. Have you heard that uh, joke? Who do you call somebody who speaks three languages? You call them what? Trilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. And then what do you call somebody who speaks only one language? An American. <laughs> Which, there can be a, a sense of, of cultural superiority, maybe an arrogance that we Americans feel when we travel. And some of you have found this to be the case. You're like, why don't they just speak English here? You know, and why are they doing those odd, strange cultural practices? I don't get it. They need to come back home with me and see how it's done right in America. And we can feel that way when we approach the Bible. We can approach the Bible, it can look strange and foreign to us because the Bible is culturally strange and foreign. It is ancient, written in a different time and place, radically different time and place. Uh, somebody uh, said to me after the first service, they said, uh, do you know why the Bible is so hard for Americans to get? I said, because Americans are weird. We are Western, industrial, educated, rich, and democratic. And ancient Israelites were none of those things. And so they were a people with different concerns and different 
issues that they were struggling with. And so you open up different passages of the Old Testament, you're like, this is odd. There's an entire chapter on bodily discharges. How strange. There are nine chapters on genealogical records. Could somebody just get to the interesting stuff? You know, there, there's, there's, there's instructions about what to do when your ox knocks over your neighbor's fence. You're like, give me something relevant. Come on. But to them, it was incredibly relevant because God spoke to our fathers to ancient Israel in their language, addressing their unique concerns in their time and place. And they began as a polytheistic, polygamous people who lived in a very violent culture. Now where do you begin with a people like that? Well, perhaps the way God does with the Old Testament. He addresses them and their concerns and he starts to take them on a journey to form and shape and fashion them on on a journey ultimately that ends in the destination called Jesus. And so oftentimes when we open up our Bibles and we come to these stories, we're like, oh, this seems so regressive and culturally weird, for example, you know, to go to Genesis 22 and God commands Isaac or Abraham to go and to take his son Isaac up on a mountain and tie him up and raise a knife and, and slaughter him. And, you know, you just think, like if somebody came up to you tomorrow and said, you know, you know what God told me this weekend? God told me that I needed to uh, go up and uh, tie my, my son down and sacrifice him. You would say, dude, you didn't hear from God. You're crazy. Those are the voices in your head. And so, you know, we read stories like this and we're like, what gives? This is so strange and regressive and violent and awful. And yet what Old Testament scholars will tell us is that that text was originally given to a people in an ancient culture where child sacrifice was extraordinarily common. And actually the point of that story, although we might, you know, allegorize it and maybe properly so and find all kinds of meaning in it and say, what is your Isaac that you need to set down on the altar? Old Testament scholars, many of them will say, actually the point of that story is to teach Abraham and Israel through Abraham that God does not want child sacrifice. It's actually this subversive, interesting, fascinating story to show that God is not the God like the pagan gods who wants blood from your children. Rather, this is the God of grace who provides a sacrifice of himself for his people, who will give his people a sacrificial system, a way whereby they can know his grace and love. And so they have different concerns and they have different ways of telling history. You know, when we tell stories, when we tell history in our own day and age in a post-enlightened scientific world, very often the thing that we are most concerned about is the what. Give me the facts, just the facts, ma'am. What happened? But ancient Israel was much more concerned about the why. And they were less concerned with facts in the post-enlightenment scientific sort of meaning and they were more concerned with meaning and with mystery. And so we open up Genesis 1, we're like, hey, what's the facts? How long did it take God to do it? You know, how does this coincide with 21st century science? It's like, well, look, they weren't dealing with 21st century science. These were an ancient people. And the text addresses them in order to communicate to them meaning, 
This is what ancient people were so concerned about. And, and you think as a 21st century modern person, well, you know, maybe if, if they were post-enlightenment scientific people and they got all the facts right, they would learn how to live really healthy, robust, life-giving lives, just like we've learned because we have all the science. Right? <laughs> we can have a unexamined assumption sometimes of our own cultural moment. And because the text doesn't fit our own cultural sensibilities, you know, we, we, we don't like it, or, or, or we think, oh, this stuff is so violent, you know, it, it's so violent, but we don't even realize how much violence our own lives are dependent upon. How violent our own, you know, we look at people and the ancient peoples and, oh, they sacrificed these animals. Well, at least they went and they ate the sac, they ate the animal after they sacrificed it as a way of fellowshipping with God. And for them, killing an animal was a sacred act. It wasn't, animals were not simply hunks of meat that you shoved through a industrial system and then threw them out in a little package in your store like we do. And sometimes we can have, we can think, oh, the way we do it is so right. And yet, sometimes to read the Bible with understanding means to enter into their culture and their setting and kind of see it from their vantage point. And so although the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. But there's a second thing we need to see. Although the Bible is the revelation of God, it comes to us through the words of men. Look back at the text. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Now stop there and ask the question, how was it that God spoke to ancient Israel? Did he say, uh, Ancient Israel, hey, listen up, everyone down there, you know, you know, he kind of peeked his head out through the clouds and said, hey, you guys, look at me, hey, I got some instructions for you. Did he write in the, in the clouds, you know, did he? No, it says he spoke to our fathers, how? It was by the prophets. In other words, the word of God came through human authors at many times and in many different ways. And in this way, the Christian understanding of revelation is different from the Muslims. For the Muslims, they just think that God dictated the Quran to Muhammad. And Muhammad was there just kind of writing down direct dictation from God himself. And he wrote it down in Arabic, because that was apparently the language that God spoke. And so a true faithful Muslim will have to learn Arabic to read it in the original language that God himself spoke. But this is not the Christian understanding of revelation. This is not how God speaks. He doesn't simply dictate, okay, Isaiah, I want you to write this, and, and Malachi, I want you to write this, and, and Moses, I want you to write this, and, and then they all just are carefully writing it down. Because in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see the unique personalities and writing styles and writing limitations of each individual author. There are some authors in the Bible that are not that good at grammar and make some grammatical mistakes. There are other authors like Luke who is very eloquent and, and, and fluid in his Greek. It's like this highly educated stuff. There's just this diversity of writing styles and then there's a diversity of genres that they use in order to communicate. And uh, the genres are, are many and they're varied. There is narrative and there is poetry and there is prophecy and there is apocalyptic genre 
and there is parable and narrative and biography and genealogical records. And there's this wide range that goes all the way from erotic love poetry you find in Song of Solomon, all the way to the existential musings in Ecclesiastes, all the way to the the wise aphorisms of Proverbs, to the poetry of the Psalms. It's a wide variety of genres. So God speaks, but it's through the agency of human authors. In 2 Peter, uh, the author puts it like this. He said that holy men of old spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not as they dictated, but as they were carried along, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along, it's the same word used to describe a a sailing ship that is carried along by the wind. It is the sailing ship that is moving, but the thing that is pushing it is the wind. And so too with the human authors, it's each individual human authors with their unique imagination and writing style and the genre of literature they're writing, but it's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that what gets written comes to us as revelation from God. And so in this way, the Bible is both divine and it's human. And in this way, it is like the incarnation of Jesus. In the incarnation of Jesus, the true and living God who is full deity enters into humanity and takes on full humanity so that he is both fully God and fully man, and yet the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus are brought together in the one person of Jesus without his humanity in any way compromising his deity nor his deity in any way sort of messing with his humanity and making him Superman. He was full humanity and fully divine, and so too this is the way of God in Revelation. Scriptures are both fully divine and yet fully human. And so to understand the word of God, you need to first understand these human authors and the kind of stuff they're writing to us. And in that way, God actually lowers himself to the capacities of human beings so that he might communicate with us. John Calvin put it like this. He said, God in so speaking lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. In other words, he says, look, he says, you know how, how you know, a young mom or dad will look at a little baby and go, oh, do, 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 oh, do, 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 you know? And then what does the child do? The child responds. That's real communication. It is loving communication. And yet it is loving communication that accommodates itself to the limitations and the capacities of the child. This is what anyone does when they're trying to connect and communicate. They enter into the capacities of those who they're trying to communicate with. And this is what God has done in scripture. He enters into and accommodates himself to our own unique, limited human capacities. Look, There is not any language, there is not any genre, there is not any any author in the history of the world who could sum up and who could bring to expression that fullness, that ineffable goodness, that, that fountain of eternity, the ocean of eternal love and power and knowledge that is God. You cannot sum up and communicate God's fullness with human language. And so God accommodates to us so that we might know something of him. In times past, in many ways, 
And at many times God spoke. He gave us knowledge of him and he begins to reveal himself in the history of this people, Israel. And more and more there's this progress and there's this development in them so that they're growing in their understanding of who this God is that ultimately is taking them on a destination. And where's that destination? It's Jesus. Third point. Although God's revelation in the Old Testament is good, God's revelation in Christ is better. And why is it better? Well, let the author of Hebrews so eloquently tell us. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is the one through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, of the majesty of God on high, having become so much more superior as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. He says Christ is fully superior to every revelation that comes before because Christ is himself the express imprint of the nature of God. He is the radiance of the beauty and the glory of God. You say, what what does the glory and the beauty of God look like? Look at Jesus. He is a superior revelation by his nature of being the eternal divine son, but then he is superior because through his work on the cross, God has dealt with all sin and all death and all darkness in the world, and he has exalted his son now to his right hand in glory. And so don't you see this revelation that comes to us in Jesus is so much better than everything that has come before. In fact, you could say that everything that came before, all of the the word that came to the fathers through the prophets, that this word was always like pointers, but Jesus was always the point. They, They were prophets that were pointing to God, but Jesus comes on and he says, I am the God whom all of the prophets have pointed to. You know, these were all like signposts pointing ahead, but Jesus is the ultimate destination. He is the one that is the full disclosure of God's true self. You know, in John 1, John puts it like this. He says, no one has seen God at any time. You stop to think about that, how much logic there is in that statement. I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a neighbor back home, and um, This is a guy who lived across the street from us, and he came over uh, with a bunch of other neighbors, and we're having this discussion in our living room on politics and religion. It's just what we did. Actually, one of my friends and I were talking about starting a um, uh, a podcast called Impolite Dinner Conversations, because we thought it'd be kind of awesome just to uh, engage in all the things we're not supposed to. But um, anyway, this guy... He, he had a PhD in post, uh, postmodern German literature from the 19th century. And he said, you know, we were talking, I was trying to talk about Christianity and God and this sort of thing. And he said, look, he said, 
I, I don't know whether or not there is a God, but if there is, how on earth could any of us claim to know the slightest accurate information about him? You ever seen that famous photo from Carl Sagan? And it's, uh, it's this uh, picture of a dark, it's kind of like this uh, backdrop of space, and then there's this little light beam in the center of it, and in the middle of this little light beam, there's a little mote of dust. And he says, this is your place in the universe. You're, su- you're suspended you know, on a mote of dust in a little beam from one star of the hundreds of billions of stars in the hundreds of billions of galaxies. Now, how could you ever deign to speak anything accurate about God? And I think John, the writer of the gospel, would say, yeah, that's right. No one has ever seen God. So how could you speak about the eternal, uncreated, eternal wellspring of all that is? How could you speak about him accurately unless God chose to reveal himself to you? And this is exactly what God has done. He has spoken. He is there, and he is not silent. In the early 60s, the Russians put the first man into outer space. And when he returned, uh, I don't know if it was the premier or the president of Russia at that time, was saying, hey, we went up into space. And he said this to you know, the, the theistic Western you know, nations. We, we went up into space, and we didn't find God. And in response, C.S. Lewis wrote this little article called The Seen Eye. And in this article called The Seen Eye, C.S. Lewis said, look, if there is a God, you could never come to know this guy the way somebody on the first floor would come to know somebody on the second floor, simply by going upstairs. God is not another great being somewhere up in the sky. He's not the great sky fairy that kind of floats around somewhere out in outer space. God is the ground of all that is. He is the one that holds it all together and is bringing it to its intended end. So C.S. Lewis says the only way you can know him is the way Hamlet could come to know Shakespeare. And if Hamlet were to ever come to know Shakespeare, it would have to be at Shakespeare's doing because Hamlet could initiate nothing. And so too, if we are to know God, it would have to be at God's own doing. And this is what God in Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, after the partial revelation comes in time past in the prophets, and all of a sudden the full disclosure of God's true self comes in his son Jesus. And now if you want to know what God is like, you want the fullest disclosure of God's true self, look at Jesus. And in Jesus, he sheds different light on the Old Testament. On the one hand, you can't really understand the identity of Jesus apart from the long unfolding story of the Old Testament. But on the other hand, you'll never accurately be able to read into those Old Testament stories that might trouble us unless you read backwards through the lens of Jesus. Where Jesus says, hey, you've heard it was said of old, an eye for an eye. You know those violent Old Testament texts, they take out one eye, you take out the other one. He says, I say to you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, give him the other one also. Love your enemies. Go the extra mile. 
When God comes among us as Jesus, he doesn't teach his people. He's not leading us in a way of violence. It's not a religion that leads to violence. This is a peaceable kingdom that calls us to love our enemies and to sacrificial love and glad self-giving to all those around us and to bear wrongs in ourselves and to extend forgiveness to others because when God incarnates in humanity, this is what he does. And he's done for you so that you might know him, not know about him. Friends, you were made to know God. And I know you were, you were made to be in relationship with other people. You were made for human community. It's not good for a man to be alone. And you weren't just made for human community, you were made for a, a purpose larger than yourself in this world, not simply to entertain yourself to death. But more than either of those things, you were made for God. And Jesus Christ has come into this world so that we might know him. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they experience their rest in God. Pascal said, you have a God-shaped vacuum that only God himself can fill. You know, do you know God or do you just know about him? Are you religious? Or have you come to know God as your Lord and as your King and as your Savior and as your friend and as your Father? This is why God has disclosed himself to us. This is why he's made himself vulnerable is so that we can know him and he invites us to come and know him and to cultivate our life with him and our knowledge of him. And may God give us all that we need in order to move forward in developing that kind of life and relationship with him. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come to you now. And we ask, oh God, that you would enable us to see the glory, the superiority, the preeminence, the majesty of your son, Jesus. Would you give us eyes to see your beauty in the face of Jesus, the beauty of self-sacrificing, self-giving, sin-bearing love, the beauty of a love that is stronger than death and that overcomes darkness and hate through love. God, would you enable us to enter into a deeper relationship with you? And would you enable us to be agents of your love, inviting others into a deep relationship with you? And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.